Well, good morning. My name is Skylar Adams. I am the RUF campus minister at ECU, and I'm excited to be with you again this morning, opening together God's Word, and I look forward to to meeting Jesus in it uh, with you this morning. Do you all know that that scene in any uh, movie or show that kind of opens up um, something pretty chaotic and like it, it, maybe it's dark or maybe it's super flashy, but, but you have no idea who the characters are. The story is unknown to you. And it's, uh, it, it, maybe it's scary, it's certainly anxious. Uh, there's a lot going on. And then right away it breaks and usually something like this comes up on, in the next uh, moment or next scene of the show or the movie and it says two hours earlier or two weeks earlier or two years earlier. And the rest of the story is unfolding how we got to that moment. The minor prophets can feel that way. We sort of parachute in, we drop in and it, 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 is, it, is, it is wild. There's so much going on. We, we may not know the names, we can't hardly pronounce them. We don't know the places. And yet it's for this reason that we're doing this series on the four-part story. It's so that when we come to the Bible and we find ourselves in a pretty mysterious place, no matter how confusing it may be, we, we remember that, that God has made everything, that our rebellion broke everything, that Christ's work alone has fixed everything. So that one day all things will be made new. See, this story, the scaffolding of what's really true, makes sense of stories like the ones we're going to read this morning. So I think we're finishing up the Minor Prophets this morning, or at least our attention to it, uh, by looking at the words of Zephaniah. If you're not sure where to find that in your Bible, there's no shame in, in, in throwing open to the table of contents. I mean, who, who does know where that is, right? You gotta, if you get to Matthew, you've gone too far um, but there'll also be the words on the screen as well for you. And um, claiming a bit of amateur hour, I'm going to add two verses that won't be here. But rest assured, God's people listened to his word long before they read it. So we'll be okay. Um, so I'll start um, in Zephaniah chapter 1, and I'm going to read just a couple of verses there. And then I'll hop into what you have, uh, beginning uh, with verse 14. Church, this is God's word. It's totally true. You can rest all of your weight upon it. Um, and he's given it to us because he loves us. The word of the Lord came that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth. One more verse here. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Now moving up to what is on your screen, verse uh, four, uh, 14. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin, 
and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth will be consumed. For a full and sudden end, he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Chapter 2. Gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Seek the Lord. All you humble of the land who do his just commands, seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may hidden, be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Skipping ahead to our last section, chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones. And you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain, but I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall not do, do no injustice and speak no lies. Nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all of your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love, and he will exult over you with loud singing. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need your help. We need your attention. We need your presence. We need your direction. We need your wisdom. We need your salvation. I'm just going to say it, God. We need all of you. And we need it now. Spirit, would you yet again bring us to Christ? Help us to take refuge in him this morning. Help us to revel in your goodness, rejoice in the hope you've purchased. Would you cover each of us this morning by your word, incarnate in your word here? Help us to see you, Christ. We ask these things in your name. Amen. I want to introduce you to a new old friend. One you probably never, well, no, you haven't met. The one you've, you don't even hardly know anything about, and yet much is to be shared in common. You see, his name uh, means Yahweh is hidden or Yahweh hides. And from the beginning of this prophecy, we're told at least a couple of things about Zephaniah. In particular, he's the great-great-grandson of 
King Hezekiah. And it's okay if that doesn't mean anything to you. Suffice to say now, Hezekiah was one of only a couple decent kings in Judah. So perhaps with with the name that his believing parents gave to him and the fact that he's connected to Hezekiah, we know historically he's mid to late 7th century. He's, He's lived, he's grown up in the terrible reign of another king named Manasseh. So maybe with these pieces taken together, what we see is God is saying something like this. Yeah, that king was awful, but I haven't given up on my people. I have hidden some. There is a remnant yet, there's a kernel. There is a people for whom I have given myself. We know from, from his words that, that they sound a lot like the words of Moses from the book of Deuteronomy. And that kind of makes sense because though he grew up with the evil king Manasseh, he was likely uh, doing his ministry when Josiah was king. And Josiah was a good king, and, and, and we know that he discovered the book of the law, the covenant of God for his people in about 620 BC. So chances are like its discovery parallels with Zephaniah's words. It sort of sound like it. This is who he was. And this is the moment that God created him to speak, to speak his own words. You see, you may not know this, but Josiah and was trying to reform the worship of God's people. After discovering God's law, he was was trying to lead people back to right worship, right belief in God. But it wasn't working. It wasn't sticking. It, 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 it It wasn't effective. You see, in other words, the heart rot of God's people was deeper than his reform effort. Josiah, the king that was around when Uh, Zephaniah is speaking. Though we got a good man at the helm, it it, it wasn't turning the ship. It's sort of like that substitute teacher who, uh, as well-meaning as they may be, the rambunctious, uh, maybe rebellious bunch that the original teacher is trying to get a break from so that the substitute can, can give it a shot, it doesn't really work. Or uh, maybe uh, a new coach has been hired, right? He or she has great sort of CV and really good character, and they're really trying to turn the program around. But if you know anything about programs and, and sports history, the culture doesn't change until the new recruits come. You see, God's people, though a good man was leading them, the rot was deep, and their form was ultimately ineffective. You see, this is where Zephaniah begins to speak. He's he's talking to his own people, and they're hardened, but not in the way you think. Not in the way you think. You see, their sin didn't look like sin anymore to them. They weren't crusty criminals. They were people enjoying their lives. Do you know any friends or family? Maybe this is your story. That aren't so... They're not very anxious about not knowing Jesus. You see, Zephaniah is delivering a message of sobriety. 
to a group of people at a cookout, eating really good food, drinking good drink. Maybe they're going a little far, but I mean, they're not, they're, they're not awful. What did he have to say? This is his message in a question. Do you realize how committed God is to you, Judah? Do you have any idea how committed he is to you? Are you aware of his intense commitment to you? Well, I'm gonna remind you of it. And it is really intense. You see, biblical writers, when they speak about God's intense commitment toward his people, it's often in reference to this idea of what's referred to as the day of the Lord. Like you got birthdays, you got commencement days, and you got the Lord's day. And I'm not talking about Sunday, I'm talking about when he comes back. When, when, when redemption is realized. And it is a day of intensity that God shows his deepest colors toward loving his people. But the thing is, this intense day can take two different postures. It can be a day of intense pain and fear, and for many, it's a day of joy and celebration. Zephaniah is actually unique in the ways that he talks about this special day. This is his message. This is what God gave to him to say. So we're gonna think about that. We're gonna think about this day that the Lord has on the divine calendar that a bunch of silly people try to predict and never get right. And it's a day of judgment and a day of celebration. This is how we're gonna break this down this morning. So the first thing I want us to think about, this is why I brought in the first couple of verses in chapter one, is that it is a day of judgment. It is. And as you get like the .5 camera thing on your iPhone, um, or you get the wide angle sort of panoramic view, this is the beginning of this day of judgment. It takes a very broad view, and we see it at the very beginning in verse two and three of chapter one. I'm gonna sweep away everything. Man and beast, bird and fish. Does that sound familiar? It's as if Zephaniah is describing the reversal of creation. From order to chaos. Sounds like the flood. God is coming on this day to show off his intense commitment to his people as a day of sweeping away all that is evil. For what reason? Verse 18. All of the earth will be consumed for a full and sudden end of all the inhabitants. Is your hair blowing back yet? <laughs> Y'all, literally every single person you know will be affected by this day. People we went to school with, uh, old roommates, people at Publix that kindly check you out, like the, you know what I mean, the groceries. Um, the people that work in every place. This day will affect everyone. So it begs the question, well, well why is it coming? I got ahead of myself a minute ago. Verse 18 is about the all-encompassing nature of this. But why is he doing it? Verse 17, everyone has sinned against the Lord. You see, 
what Zephaniah is saying, no one is a victim and God is not unhinged. God's anger and judgment is not like my frustration at the tent that I couldn't get back in the bag at the beach. I couldn't fold it up. And so I said, I'm going to win. So I stuffed it as hard as I could and I threw it. God's judgment is focused and just. You see, the description of this sin that we're told of, of those that, don't, that aren't a part of God's people, the nations as they're referred to, is that it's ultimately an arrogance, a pride that shows itself um, in the awful mistreatment of other people. You can go back and read this. It's pride that shows up, those people that don't know God, that, that shows up in like violence, uh, oppression, manipulation, slavery, extortion, greed. You see, God's judgment towards sin to those people that don't know him is a judgment about the ways that they have abused their neighbors. It's different for God's people. But this is what he's coming after. And let me just address this here. When we hear this word, judgment, it just screams at everything that we hear. Especially in our culture, like this sounds barbaric and medieval. It's totally at odds with the chief virtues of tolerance and inclusivity. So we think. You see, if I may, and if you would receive this, you may not, that's totally fine. But in order for God to be good, I would argue, he must respond to evil. He must do something if he is as loving as he says. In high school, I made a foolish decision, mistake. Like foolish, made a bunch of them, but this one really stands out. And I'll never forget, I get home, I'm walking upstairs, my, my family's actually having like a small group Bible study. It's perfect, it's totally ironic. Um, I get to my room, and my dad, I notice he's following me, he gets upstairs, and there's a form of anger that I've never seen before. He looks at me with tears in his eyes, and he says, I have never been more angry at you because I can't imagine you're hurting someone or something awful happening to you or that I lose you. And then he left my room. Y'all, our God's anger toward our sin is not unhinged. It is the work of love, pursuing the loved. You see, it's a broad judgment but it's also a very specific and, and, and focused judgment. We, you know, we, we read this and, and we often forget that he's actually talking about mostly God's people. <laughs> like sandwiched in between, like some of these really hard words is actually a whole lot of stuff about God's people. And we see this in chapter one, verse four, I will stretch out my hand against whom, Judah? This image of stretching out a hand is rich. It's, 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 it's a way in which God would express that he is going to summon every resource he has to save his people. It's going to be unusual. He might even suspend the laws of nature to do it. 
Let me put it to you this way. You want to be behind the hand, not in front of the hand. There's a really grisly scene um, in Steven Spielberg's movie, Saving Private Ryan, where um, you have an American soldier um, who is, is literally fighting with um, an enemy soldier. And it's such an eerie scene. It's quiet. It's, it's, it's almost too real. Um, but what makes the scene particularly painful is there's another soldier whose primary job was to bring ammunition from right behind the line to people like this guy. He has, as it were, the resources to do something about this. And yet what's so hard about this scene is you watch this character become afraid and cower, and he never makes it, and that soldier dies. The enemy soldier feels so bad he doesn't even do anything to this guy as he sits there. You see, when God stretches out his hand, the good news is that he doesn't, he doesn't get afraid. He doesn't stop pursuing. He doesn't say, you know what, they'll figure it out. They'll, they'll figure it out. No, with every resource he has, he pursues. And the pursuit stings. What is, he, what is he after? What does he see in his people? Well, specifically, we see in verse 4 of chapter 1 that there remains this sort of remnant of Baal worship. Fun, convenient, predictable, erotic worship of the culture's gods. That's what he sees. He sees idolatrous priests in verse 5 that are leading God's people to the worship of God's gifts. He sees God's people worshiping him and also worshiping another God named Milcom. What he sees is a people double-dipping, superstitious, watered-down religious work. This is what he sees. You see, Zephaniah's audience knows that the day of God's judgment against evil, abuse, oppression, injustice is coming, but they don't expect it to be focused on them. Me? You see, God's judgment toward the nations is the way that they abuse their neighbors. God's judgment toward his people, his discipline of his people, is how he, we treat him, is how we are not relating to him. Let me ask you this. If God's justified anger could be aimed at his circumcised, temple-going, pro-God, externally decent people, what could that mean for us? Do you realize how committed God is to restoring his people? Have you seen it? You see, our God is not an absent parent. He's not a helicopter parent. He's an engaged parent. The justice he's bringing is the result of his care. What is fascinating about this entire prophecy is a picture that no one in it wants God. No one. God still wants them. <laughs> this is what he's doing. He's coming after his people. It's not only a day of judgment against evil, it is also a day of celebration. God's big day won't just be destruction. We see this profoundly at the end of this prophecy. Shout, sing, no more judgment, Zephaniah says. No evil, no fear. 
It is no accident that God, some of God's most severe words are in the same prophecy as some of his sweetest. Why? Our God's character, the message of Zephaniah, the message of the Bible, is not a description of a God with two characters, a God of judgment and a God of celebration. You see, the entire story of Scripture speaks of God's delight over his people that is ruptured by our sin. And he is on a mission. He's going to get to the party. He's going to get his people there. His delight is is chapter 1 and chapter 4. Judgment is the means through which he, he pursues that. You know, the Bible is not a story of a yin and yang world. The empire versus the rebellion. It's a story of God's delight being lost by our sin and through Christ himself restoring it through his own judgment. We see Zephaniah grabbing every Hebrew word at his disposal to do something crazy. He's like, listen up. After this really painful message, I want you to sing. I want you to shout. I want you to rejoice. I want you to exult. (laughs) Celebrate God's people, he says. It'll be the best day of your life. Rehearse now, he says. It's going to be amazingly sweet. You ever daydream about that place or that memory when life's super stressful? Well, here's a biblical encouragement to daydream about God's day. Borrow its future promise into our life today. You ever go back to that photo album when you're sad, when you miss that person you don't have? He's saying, rejoice now, rehearse now. Why is this so hard for us? I think there's something in our hearts that just believes that it's just too good to be true. How in the world, in the face of such severe mercy, i.e. his judgment toward our sin, could he command such a thing? And if he does, which he does, how are we supposed to respond to that? If you're anything like me, there's just, there's these lingering parts of my heart that just thinks something's going to sabotage that. You can't fully let your guard down. You can't be that unreserved. You can't celebrate God that much. The shoe's going to drop. It can't be that good. And yet, this is the very reason for which this exists here. You see, it's not a one-sided celebration. In verse 17, we're told something beautiful. It says that God will rejoice over us. He is a savior in our midst. He's going to quiet us by his love. And he's going to, in paraphrase form, beam over you with loud singing. After all the faithless living, after all the lame attempts to be obedient, after all the really good jobs at being disobedient, God will be happy with us. He will be proud. And he will sing. Why? How? Though it's not explicit here, I think Zephaniah is grabbing something that God says throughout his word. And it's this metaphor that he uses over and over to describe his relationship to his people. And it's this metaphor of marriage. Here are the words that you'd hear on a wedding day. 
He sings, he dances, he beams with pride because that's what grooms do on their wedding day. You see, the living God in Christ, when he comes back, will look at his people, your face cupped in his hands, and he will say, I have everything because I have you. Man, that's hard to hear. You see, we don't expect this sort of ending. It's like giving ice cream to a kid who just like hit their sibling. Like why? That makes no sense. They're not gonna learn. They're not gonna get it right. Our hearts will always be tempted to believe that we must make ourselves worthy of grace. And yet this is why this must be here. The only thing that will convince, convince my heart and yours of God's grace in Jesus is his grace. What has he done? He's taken away our judgments. He has cleared our enemies. No amount of contrition will remove your debt. You can't, you can't feel bad enough. You can't navel gaze long enough. It's because the Savior is in your midst. As Rock of Ages, the great old hymn goes, not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Nope, can't do anything. Could my zeal no respite know? Nope, I can't just be passionate. Could my tears forever flow? Nope, I can't feel sorry enough. All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. This is a day of celebration for God's people. And before we end with this message, this story, it's important to know how he does this. How does it go from something sounds so tragic to something so celebratory? And snuck right here in the middle of this prophecy in chapter two are these interesting words. Seek the Lord. Humble yourself. Do his commands. Seek righteousness that you may be hidden on the day of the Lord. In other words, Zephaniah's invitation is this. When you see the almighty God bring his almighty wrath, run to him. It sounds crazy. Everything in us wants to run away, right? I want to get away from that. I can't be found out for that. But the good news is there is no protection away from him, but rather in him. The day of the Lord, y'all, is not a day when God loves good people and he kicks out bad people, when he accepts law keepers and he rejects lawbreakers. It's a day when the humble one of God, Jesus himself, the only covenant keeper, the only law abider, the only one who does what this asks and requires, so that as we are made humble, it's never a day of judgment, but a day of celebration. We know this. We speak of this every single week, right? Though Christ deserved to be hid, he was swept away. The creator of the world is taken up in the deluge of creation. He was consumed by God's righteous fury so that when we turn toward him, we won't be. Do you remember when God tells Moses to hold up the serpent? <laughs> Look at it and you'll be saved. The day of destruction for Jesus, so that you and I will only know a day of celebration. Do you see how committed our God is to his people? 
This is the message of Zephaniah. Two takeaways. First, our sin desensitizes us. Desensitizes us. Our sin is like frostbite. We, we're exposed over and over to a point where we grow numb. We can't see, we can't hear, we don't sense anymore that what we're doing is not the way God made us. This is taken from the entire prophecy itself and then even specifically in verse six and 12. Let me show you this in chapter one. God says this, Those, these are the people for whom my um, judgment and discipline is coming. Those who do not seek the Lord, verse six, verse 12. Those who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, the Lord won't do good, nor will he do ill. In other words, those furthest from God are those who are apathetic toward him. Not the haters, the ones who don't care. And what we see is God's people don't care. Ah, you know, yeah, there's a little bit of this Baal worship left and we've got this going on. We, you know, we're double dipping and serving you and trying to love this other God as well. Like, they're complacent. It's a place where our sin causes apathy to outrun our humility. Cynicism outruns our trust. We don't care anymore. Furthermore, we don't care that we don't care. This is what our sin does. It caves in on us. You see, in every way, sin always presents itself as small, fun, inconsequential. Thus, we always underestimate it, right? And so in the early stages, we're actually in a position of a little bit of control. Ooh, this is kind of exhilarating. I like this. Let's do it. But the cycle of sin is just that. As it entices, it begins to consume. As we underestimate it, it takes over. This is why the first time it's like an adrenaline rush, and by the 50th time it's like, meh. This is where we get our understanding of gateway drugs. Sorry, I know, hopefully that's a little bit silly. People don't arrive addicted to fentanyl. It started somewhere well before that. You see, sin... We can't hear God. In fact, we, we don't care that we don't hear him. As this works its way in our lives, I think there's several ways that we can see this. As we give ourselves into sin, it begins to take over. This is why people who talk about people tend to be talked about. This is why people who despise people are despised. This is why cowards tend to be left. This is why people who will do anything for your attention are not worth it often. This is why we see workaholism as productivity. This is why we see obsession with our physical fitness and beauty as good stewardship of our bodies. This is why we see stinginess with money and time as frugality and prudence. This is why we see power as leadership. Do you see? It hides in plain sight. So the question for us as God is aiming at his people, look at your sin, you don't see it. You're blind to it. I'm yelling and you don't hear me. Can you see your own rebellion? Do you see the beginnings of it? Maybe it's a fear of missing out. Maybe it's a fear of failure. 
Maybe it's the fear of disappointing others. I'm just naming you mine. Are you willing to admit that you are not nearly as sensitive to the sin in your life that you once were? If this all sounds like an exaggeration, you might be vulnerable. How do we get out of this cycle? Right? The message is the day of the Lord. It's an intense day of God's commitment to his people. It sounds wildly scary to those who don't know him and are happy to not know him. But it is an absolute thrill of ecstatic joy for his people purchased in Christ. And as we think about this text, what we see is God's people have no idea why they're the ones. Because our sin desensitized. How do we get out of this cycle? It's not an awareness contest. You don't have to know more of your sin than your neighbor does to save you, right? Nothing can. Rather, Christ alone must. This takes us to our second and final takeaway this morning. God delights in you, Christian. God delights in you, Christian. Most Christians, they might even be honest about this. God may not be angry at me, though he might be on some days, has been disgusted with me, or is at least mildly disappointed with me. He lets me hang around him because I'm useful, but I don't know that he actually enjoys me. Will you hear these words? He will quiet you by his love. God says, stop talking. Start listening. I couldn't help but think of Luke 15, when one of the lost sons returns home, he's got his big uh, apology statement printed and practiced and ready. And what does his father do? He nearly doesn't even acknowledge it. Rather, he gives to this son his best robe. He gets out the Japanese Wagyu. He embraces his son and he kisses him. Not a pat on the back, not a firm handshake, or an awkward side hug. He grabs him. Now, I realize that this sort of divine PDA feels a little strange. Maybe it's just poetry. And our hearts might say something like this, man, this is only reserved for those people that uh, deserve it. We're all allergic to this delight our hardwiring poor performance despises it actually. So we just talk. Talk to defend ourselves, talk to make sense of God, talk in our small groups. We don't listen. We don't hear the love of God that quiets us. Do you remember Christ at his trial? It's okay if you don't. He didn't say anything. We're actually told that in front of in front of Pilate, he, he is silent. Y'all, the people, the quietest people, and I'm not, just, I'm not talking about introversion, extroversion, I'm not talking about that. The, the quietest people, I'm going to assume we can agree what that means, even though it's vague, are those that know they're loved. Are those that are so secure in who they are. Again, I'm not talking about whether you talk or not. I'm talking about the people that you can tell deep they're quiet. God will quiet us with his love. The only thing that will convince us of God's grace is his grace. How well do you know this delight? How well do you know this grace? 
Believer, do you realize how committed God is committed to you? Christ has saved you with his own life, enduring the fury of that day, so that you be received, embraced, held, adored, sung over. I'll end with this. The great hymn, Joyful, Joyful, goes like this. We adore thee, God of glory, Lord of love. Hearts unfold like flowers before thee, opening to the sun above. Melt the clouds of sin and sadness, drive the dark of doubt away. The only way that our hearts become soft to grace is grace. You know, the fear of death definitely made Ebenezer Scrooge afraid. But Bob Cratchit had something to do with it. His compassion, his resistance to badmouth Ebenezer Scrooge, as awful as he was, only grace changes. Only the gospel of Jesus actually changes our hearts. Let's pray. Hey, Father, thank you for your word. It's truer than we dare to believe. Thank you for being with us. As we may have been nervous to hear some of the things you have to say, Spirit of the living God, would you soothe your people? Would you cover their sins again? Would your grace alone help us to repent well? Would we for the first time experience like obedience because we like you, because we see that you've loved us, not just get something from you? Would you help us to see what the gospel has done? Lord, would you cause your word to, to grow up in our hearts, to believe you more and more, your intense and beautiful commitment to your people, to get rid of everything that deforms us so that we might be formed in Christ. Jesus, help us with that. We ask it in your name. Amen.